Hey everyone, it's Philip here with the Everyday Fighter podcast. And today's episode, we're going to be talking to Jennifer Harshman. Now, <laughs> this interview came as quite a surprise to me. Um, I put out a call on one of the groups I'm in on uh, social media and said, hey, if if you have some experience with martial arts, um, message me and, you know, maybe we could get you on the podcast. Uh, again, message from Jennifer. She says, oh, that sounds like it'd be fun. I have a, a couple of, of years of uh, Taekwondo, you know, when, when I was younger. And I said, okay, well, you know, let's let's schedule some time. But I'll tell you what, leading up to the interview, I was a bit apprehensive, mainly because this is all I knew about Jennifer. <laughs> you know, my goal, of course, is to talk to everyday fighters, uh, people just like you and me. But I just didn't know how this was going to go. I thought that, okay, well, what if she, you know, she did it two years as, as a kid and that's it, right? I mean, there's, I mean, she did a couple of katas, she learned, she got a couple of belts and, and that was all. I was like, okay, well... I, I, it wasn't looking good in, in my eyes, um, thinking of it that way. So I decided to switch. It's like, you know what, let's just go with it anyway and, and see what, what she has to say. And I, I got to tell you, it was the best thing that I could have ever done. I mean, Jennifer has just an amazing story. I mean, you'll hear my shock <laughs> when she, when she reveals it and it goes beyond, well beyond two, two years of, um, martial arts um, training as a kid, she gets pretty open about some challenges that she grew up with, specifically with uh, sexual abuse, um, kind of sex trafficking uh, in, in, um, in, in her youth and how it affected her, but then also how she was able to get out of it with the help of some really amazing people in her life and a bit of martial arts as well. And of course, you know, just being able to get past that experience is just an incredible story. But then also she talks about more of how she's been able to regain balance in her life beyond that experience and in other areas of her life. So this is just an amazing interview, uh, you know, as I, as I look back on it and I hope that you get uh, quite a bit out of it as well. Before we get into it, though, I wanted to uh, do our uh, episode spotlight. And um, as with all of our episode spotlights, none of these are um, sponsored. Uh, no one's paying me to say this. It's just these are folks, these are people, these are organizations that are doing things that I think uh, could merit some um, some shout outs, you know. Today, I want to talk about Humans of New York. Now, they're pretty big, particularly if you've been on any kind of social media at all, Instagram or Facebook specifically. But this uh, gentleman, uh, Brandon Stanton, lived in New York, and he started off this project. It's a personal project of photographing 10,000 New Yorkers, just, just getting their faces and being able to photograph them and kind of create a kind of a personal project around that. Over time, he started talking to these people. So instead of just photos, then he started to add a bit of a 
mini story or anecdote or vignette about the person that he took a picture of and just started blowing up from there. Um, it was really useful to me because when I first saw them, I was in a place where I was fairly closed off from the outside world, uh, aside from my family and clients uh, that, I, that I work with. I didn't really get out a lot and socialize and anything. So I had a very small bubble in terms of what I saw as the world. And when I saw Brandon's posts and the things that these real people were sharing with him and then sharing with the world, it really threw me for a loop in that, wow, this is, this is what the real world is. This is, these are real people that are out there. They have real stories and it allowed me to be much more empathetic to reconnect with, with people. And it's just a, a great thing that, that he has done. And now he doesn't only do this in New York. He actually, uh, since then, he's been going on world tours, like going to uh, Southeast Asia or Europe or, you know, all these other uh, uh, places in the world and doing the same thing, taking their photos, learning to hear more about these people's stories, um, refugees, immigrants, a lot of different people from all walks of life. So even though it's called Humans of New York, he really does uh, a lot for uh, people all around the world. So I highly recommend that you uh, check them out. You can go to humansofnewyork.com and uh, you know get more about them there. That is our spotlight. And with that, let's get into the interview with Jennifer Harshman. Well, I was born into a family that was very abusive, and um, I was involved from the time I was very, very young, um, probably from birth, uh, involved in a pedophile ring that ran from St. Louis to Evansville to Nashville. And uh, my uncle became aware of, he had been, um, we were in Southern Illinois and my uncle had lived in Arizona for many years. Um, he ran a dojo in Phoenix and he moved to Southern Illinois because he was having some health problems and he became aware of my situation mm. and he wanted to do something about it, but the local authorities, because they were involved, would not do anything to stop it. So he decided he was going to equip me to defend myself. So he taught me Taekwondo mm. and, um, and some other, um, you know, what he called street fighting. So th there was more than just the regulation moves um, that, that he taught me. And it literally saved my life several different times. So it's one of those, um, you know, every, every woman should know self-defense, different things like that. Um, but it came in handy so many times. And when I was in college, I helped to, it was very informal. It wasn't an official class, but I helped to lead a group that also taught women self-defense so that, you know, situations like that, that they come across, they would be able to make it out safely. Oh my God. Okay. Let me, let me pick up my jaw off the ground. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't expecting this to go. Wow. That was, that was crazy. So, okay. Um, 
how old were you when your your uncle started, approached you about this? I was 12 years old. Okay. And um, my mother was very much against it um, because, of course, that was it was the family income. Um, so she didn't want me to be able to um, fight my way out of those situations. So there was some family conflict over it, but she she finally gave in to that. She said, "Okay, that's fine, but I want you to teach my other children also." So um, that way, it was more of a um, a family event, mm. um, and that way, it was it was able to um, to be passed off as something that was not necessarily for me. It was for all the kids and I just had to participate too. So that worked with, um, my father figure. So, uh, and your, your siblings, uh, younger, older, how many of them? Well, they, they were all younger. I'm the oldest. Okay. Okay. So, it, uh, uh, and you, you, were you the only girl? No. Um, there were three other girls and one boy. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Four and then one. Oh my gosh, um, I—that's interesting because when you say it was the family business, I'm curious about how that was positioned because it really, like you're saying, it was kind of at odds, mm-hmm, right? So how is it that that they're able to buy it? That okay, we can, you, we can, we'll, we'll have Jennifer do this now, right? Um, I think it was because my uncle had run that dojo and that had been his life Mm. and he had to retire because of health problems. And so, well, you know, he really needs something to do and he can't open a dojo here. So we have all these children in our family. Let's just let the old guy teach the kids some stuff and it'll be okay. It'll give him something to do and a sense of purpose again. And what's it going to hurt? So I think that's kind of the way that it was couched and it worked. And I'm so very glad that it did. So it was just really, um, it wasn't such that he opened up a new dojo or anything like that. It was like, okay, let's, let's go to the back now. Let's go to the yard or whatever. And all the kids are going to line up and we're just going to work it. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. So did you, <sighs> that's very, because uh, these days, particularly people listening to this, when they're talking, uh, when we talk about martial arts, typically their first introduction to it would be a formal strip mall kind of you know it's like there's a door you go in there's a door you go out how did that set up in in terms of your your training um like in a yard i mean were there did did your uh did your uncle have formalities where you're bowing onto the ground i mean how did that work well it was he lived i lived with my grandmother at the time Mm -hmm. for for some of this and he lived with her Mm -hmm. so um, he was sort of a, a father figure to me during that time. And so it was everyday living. I would come home from school and sometimes I wouldn't know um, if he would be behind the door and if I needed to be alert, or, you know, uh, ready to block whatever might be coming. And, and he would, um, he was always very safe with things. So I, I never- sneak up on you. Uh, right. Um, <laughs> things like that. 
Um, and then sometimes just after dinner, um, he would say, okay, it's time to um, go through you know, your eight count block, or it's time to work with the nunchucks, or it's time, you know, whatever it was. So a lot of family time revolved around my martial arts training. Mm. So it was just, um, and I got much more of it because my siblings lived with my mom and my stepdad. So they would have to come over for their training. So that way I, I really benefited more than they did. Okay. Cause you were like right there with you know, your teacher was living right there with you. Yes. Okay. Wow. Wow. So, um, I mean, how, did you do sports or anything like that prior to, to this? No, no. So <laughs> it's, I, I know, you know, from you know, people, you know, kids that, that I teach, it could be a bit of a, a shock to just emotionally, mentally, definitely physically, because uh, especially if they don't have a kind of a sports type background or an opportunity to to learn about themselves in that way. What was that process like for you? Um, sometimes it was very difficult because due to my upbringing, I lived in my head. Um, any physical sensations, I blocked off as much as possible. And it was a survival mechanism. Mm. So I had to learn to feel my body in time and space again. Mm. And I had to learn what balance meant. Um, I was so easy. I mean, he could just walk up and touch me and knock me over. I had no balance when we started. So we drilled on that more than probably anything for quite a while. Um, and he had me doing different things like holding a glass of water out on my ankle mm -hmm. and maintaining that posture and not being able to be tipped over and, you know, different things like that to really strengthen that skill. But I had to learn to enter my body again in, in so many different ways. Mm. And that was really difficult for me to do because, like I said, it had served so much as a survival mechanism so I had to learn to shift back and forth at times between, okay, I'm just going to live in my brain and okay, now I can experience the world through a physical body. Because this was still going on uh, at this time as well, right? So you're yeah, at your grandmother's and then like every once in a while, then you'd have to live through what you were living through as well. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you started to get that feeling back in terms well, won't say back, but I guess so back. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. what was that like for you? Like, you know, wow, this is, I can, I can move in this way. I can, you know, you just kind of knowing, like you said, like knowing your body again, what was that like? It was a mixed bag. Mm. Uh, that was the time that my fibromyalgia onset. And so I had a lot of physical pain that started to, um, you know, express itself, but at the same time, it was also very grounding for uh, lack of a better word. Um, I, f I felt more balanced emotionally. Mm. I was able to handle more of not, not just, um, you know, what was going on as far as the abuse in my life, but even the things at school, uh, you know, I, I was not really the most popular um, mostly because a lot of the people knew what was going on and it was, you know, I was the one that was kind of looked down upon for that mm. and was, you know, picked on. Mm. Um, but it helped me to just let go of any need for justice that I felt and, um, and to be able to just kind of go with the flow more. Um, so in so many ways, like 
sometimes people will credit one thing or another with saving their life. And sometimes they just mean that in a metaphoric type sense, but literally in many ways, martial arts saved my life. And it was really, I mean, because I mean, my ears perked up there when you're talking about like justice for, for this type of thing. And, but Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely want to delve into that a little bit more if you're okay with that. But just in terms of, you know, because we were talking about balance and you learning that a bit about you. I mean, it sounds like just getting to know your body more and getting to be able to have that ownership a bit more, it seems to have overflowed into other areas of your life. Yes. Yes, it definitely did. Um, that's an interesting thing, you know, because listen, we'll see the, the uh, commercial, we'll see the marketing from, from a lot of, you know, martial arts places or whatever, it, you know, you'll get this, you'll get that, you'll get the, the balance and stuff and it'll, it'll overflow. I mean, this is not something, but it's, it's very, I mean, it's, 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 it's within a, a particular, I guess, expectation of uh, like just, purely physical you'll learn this stuff but i mean it's very difficult you can't sell anything and i don't think many people could believe that wow if you'll just learn how to you know to work your body again that it's going to help you in other ways as well you know what i'm saying i totally understand that and i'm living proof that it really does Um, when i when i first started um there were some people in my life who thought that i was mute that's how hard it was for me to speak, for me to talk to anyone outside of my immediate family inside my home, um, even at school. You know, yes, I knew the answers and I prayed that the teacher never called on me because I didn't want to have to talk. Uh, and now somebody sends out a call and I'm, I'm on it. Or um, I, I walk into a store and I see someone who needs help and I help them. I have absolutely no problem talking to anyone, anytime, anywhere, or about just about anything. And that's one of the changes that came out of me going through Taekwondo with my uncle. Because we haven't even talked about like punches and kicks and that type of thing yet. <laughs> I mean, the main thing you're talking about is like, I learned balance. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at like movie scenes in my head, you know, or, like Kill Bill and these, you know, just kind of like the montage of training and stuff. And I'm like, I, because it is so huge. I mean, know that, you know, you can't, you can't throw an effective strike without having that balance first. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that, that really that really was uh, interesting for, for me to, uh, to hear. So, wow. How long did it take for you to get to that point? I spent about a year and a half altogether working with him. Mm. But um, the first couple of months... I think we're where I did, we, we kind of front loaded the learning. So that's where, um, and, and that was a lot of the, the exercises and things like that. And of course I wanted to get to the punches and the kicks and show me a roundhouse, you know, and you know, all, all of the fun stuff that we do see in the movies and the dramatic looking things. And of course my uncle wouldn't do that. And mm. he says, you're not ready. Mm. You know, it's like grasshopper kind of a thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, so he, he taught me blocks and he taught me how to use the chucks. Mm. And other than that, it was all of the, the physical work and, um, and the mental work that was involved. And then after, after that point, when I was able to 
turn my knee out and you know hold my ankle out to the side and hold a glass of water there for about 60 minutes mm-hmm. with various touches and, and little nudges here and there. Um, then he says, okay, now you're ready. You're stable. You have a good stable base. Wait a minute. Now- so you'd stay in a stance where you're kicking, holding your arm, uh, your foot out kicking. He'd put a glass on top of it and then you on, you'd, on your mm-hmm. ankle and you'd stay there for an hour. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the entire time. Like he would move around me, and um, you get a break a little bit in between. But like you spent, you spent an hour on that exercise. A little break, bring it back. Oh my gosh! Yeah, he wanted to be sure that I was completely, you know, as developed with that as I could be before we moved on to what he called the fun stuff. Um, And then, then we worked into, and he showed me different things with punches and kicks and things. But uh, for the most part, it was. It was more of the balance, which is what I needed so much. You mentioned the mental aspect of it. What what was that? I mean, like how how did that come into play, and how did he try to help you in that aspect? Some of it was meditation mm. and um, learning to sit with myself, and he's you know not any particular um, mantra or anything like that, but just learning to sit and feel the ground that I was sitting on and to experience sometimes we would do it outside. And so to experience the sounds and to be aware of my environment, which is so helpful. <laughs> um, sometimes he would just sit there on the park bench behind me. And then he would say, what quadrant was that bird in? And I would have to tell him whether it was, you know, to my forward, left, back, right, you know, all of that. Um, and I didn't know what to expect or what to be listening for. So I just had to sit and be mm. and, and learning how to do that has been really helpful also because I, because of my other training, I was trained to be a workaholic. So learning how to stop and just be is something that's really important too. Hmm. When you started this uh, process with him, how were you in terms of? Here's the thing. Um, like sometimes when I when I work with um, with newer students, uh, particularly women, mm-hmm. it's they have a challenge with. I mean, just just hitting somebody else, <laughs> like a, a like a, another human human being. Is that something that that you had to go through, like struggle through at all, or? At first, no, because I wanted to learn that. I wanted to be able to fight off people who were hurting me. You had that emotion in you already that I, I there has to be a way to fight back. Mm -hmm. Yes. The only point, um, there one time he had um, a dummy Mm -hmm. that um, is supposed to replicate the human body with certain organs and things. And one of the tasks that he gave me um, was very graphic. And as a 12 year old, um, I didn't want to have to do that. And I just thought, Oh no, cause I was seeing a person, you know, I, I didn't look at it as, Oh, this is just, and he goes, it's just, you know, rubber and, and silicone and goo. And I was like, no, it, it, to me, it felt like that was a person. And he says, if it comes down to your life or someone else's, you need to be able to do this. And I got very squeamish about that. And it took me a couple of days before I could even get myself to try that. 
Um, and then it took a couple of times before I could actually execute the maneuver. So um, that was the only part where I felt squeamish. But when I was teaching people at the college, most of the women were really squeamish. Um, and, you know, they would go up and just want to just you know, tap. And I'm like, no, you have to get. And so we just kind of tapped into the emotion. And I, and I would walk them through the scene. And I would say, look, you're walking home uh, from the, the science building and it's late and you're getting to your dorm and you're attacked and you spin and what, you know, and then they would be able to explode with some emotion there and, and actually hit, you know, the glove or the bag or whatever. So sometimes that's how we would do it is to just get them in, in the sensory aspects of it and to feel it in their bodies and, and to feel that emotion. And then that would help them to get over that, that hesitancy. Mm-hmm. But when you were uh, working with your, with your uncle, I mean, he was very, it sounds like he, I mean, he had a methodology <laughs> that he was, well, you, he, had, he had specific things that he wanted to impart to you Yes. When it came to, oh man, like, did he pull any punches in terms of those types of scenarios that he painted for you? Uh, like, knowing what you were going through when he he was you weren't around him, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that I guess that's because I, I, I think for me, whenever I when I'm teaching, I don't want to traumatize anybody. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to. And if there's anything latent inside, you know, I don't know any you know, people's histories, that type of thing. I don't want to trigger anything right. or such. Right. So right. I'm, well, I'm curious about how that uh, how he treaded with you and how you were taking the things that he was he was telling you about different scenarios and you know, trying to paint the picture for you. Mm-hmm. I think as much as he could, he tried to keep it as standard, like what he would teach anyone who came into his school. Um, There, there were some things um, as far as, you know, from the shoulders up that he got pretty specific with me on um, as far as self-defense moves. Um, But he didn't treat it like, okay, we're just looking at a sexual assault scenario. Okay. He never really felt like that to me. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, You mentioned, um, the nunchucks, even just starting with that first, even before, before like the punches and kicks and stuff. What? <laughs> that's that's an interesting um, approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that like for you? Um, it was really hard. I, I felt so uncoordinated, and I think the the reason that he brought that in before some of the other things was because again of the balance, and and because of rhythm. So working with the chucks, you have to do it at a certain cadence and, and, um, you know, of course, the back and forth motion. uh, You've got to get that right or you're going to hurt yourself. Well, that was my next question. It's like, what were these? Were these forgiving foam kind of chucks or? (laughs) They were a lightweight wood. So not something that you would actually want to carry out into a a scenario. Um, But. It was, it was firm enough that I got a couple of bonks on the head. So, uh, you know, enough that it taught me pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. There's nothing like, um, not like a little pain, right. Uh, as a, as a training partner. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. So, uh, you trained with him, um, fairly, uh, you know, closely for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. 
and you mentioned actually literally having to use the skills that you'd been learning. Now, was that something that had came into play during this year and a half, or did it come after you were done with them, or both? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was that like? Like having to to actually do it for the first time. It was triumphant. Mm. It was triumphant. There, there's really no other word for it. Um, it increased my confidence so much. And, and that was what they would call the beginning of the end um, for the, the crime going on in that family. So really? Because I had the ability to fight back. And there are, you know, there, there are coercion tactics and, and different things like that. But unless somebody wanted to get very violent with me, um, they didn't have much of a choice there. It just wasn't going to happen. So, um, you know, people didn't want to tie in with me, so to speak. Um, they, they didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. And so, um, clients disappeared and, um, I basically that, that training basically put an end to my slavery. So it wasn't even such that it, it was just a kind of a, a personal kind of triumph, which it still was absolutely. But it, it completely changed the, the course of your entire family. Yes. Wow. And it was, a, a, in, I mean, you were, you were the oldest. Um, you took that first step. I guess not only for you, it sounds, but I mean, probably for, for all your, your siblings as well. Because they weren't getting that much training either. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it's just, now, it's interesting that you say that that was kind of like the, it's almost like it's, 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 it's memorialized for you. Like you, you like, you have like a specific name for it. This was the beginning of, I can't remember exactly what you said, but the beginning, the beginning of, the, of the end. Yeah. 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 So how, how soon after that did things just pretty much just crumble for, for that part of your life in terms of the, the, the crappy stuff? <laughs> At least that uh, well, part, yeah. That was um, about the time I was 14 um, when, when that finally got quite a bit better. Um, and then I was, um, I was working when I turned 15, I started working at a local restaurant and that's how I supported my parents and my siblings. Um, so, you know, I was still the one in charge of making all the money, but at least it was something that I, I could live with and I could be proud of. And, uh, is a much safer environment. Absolutely, absolutely. So, okay, um, year and a half with your uh, with your uncle. Within uh, six months of you know kind of finishing a bit of that training. Of course, during that training, you had you had to use uh, the skills that you're learning. Um, very different environment, though. Training with your uncle to actually having to use your skills in a particular scenario. Um, what was, what is that like? Just kind of, you know, from, it's almost like being on the mat, being in the safe learning environment to, oh my gosh, I actually have to do this now. What was that process like for you? It was kind of like tunnel vision. Um, so the first time um, that I told a quote unquote client that it wasn't happening anymore, um, he thought he'd get handsy and, and make it happen. And so I fought him off and, you know, uh, fingers to the eyes, groin kick, he was done. But all of that I saw 
tunneled down to just his face. Mm. So it, it very much tunnel vision and um, reality shifted just a little bit where I was much more focused and um, I didn't notice the sounds around me and, and things like that. So it's kind of like, sometimes you'll see that kind of thing in the movies mm. um, like with say a bullet that's going in slow motion or something like that. Um, it was like that for me. It's like, it just, it's a, yeah. Like it's like a different kind of reality like sets in where, Oh, it's, this is, this is happening. <laughs> I'm doing this right now. That's, that's very interesting. My goodness. So uh, you did all this and you didn't have any belts. You didn't get any stripes. No, um, no. he had actually asked me at the beginning if I wanted to belt or not. And I said, well, you're the pro you, you tell me what, you know, what's the pros and cons. And so he, because he knew about my situation, he said, well, if you belt and you do well and you advance, then people could say that you have all this training, your hands are a lethal weapon, you know, whatever. And you could be held legally liable if you damage somebody's, you know, physically. And I said, even though I'm getting raped, <laughs> you know, even though, and he says, yes, even though, unfortunately, because our system is sometimes very messed up which I knew intimately because, you know, some of the local judges were involved in my abuse. So um, I thought that that was just, you know, horrible, but I said, okay, so what if I don't belt? And he says, then nobody can prove you knew anything. You just got in a lucky kick or something. And so I said, that makes my decision right there. I will not belt. Mm, mm. So everything that I did was unofficial, and because he taught me at home and not in a dojo, there's no record, um, you know, things like that. So that's why we went that way. And I think ultimately it's sometimes people will use a belt as kind of like a, it's almost like an excuse, you know, it's almost like, okay, well, this is my kind of my, my level. Oh, I'm only a white belt. I'm only a yellow belt. So I can't do those other things because I haven't gotten my black yet. Right. But when it comes right down to it, the skills you have are the skills you have, regardless of what you're wearing, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's a uh, that's, that's very interesting. So you started you started working at the restaurant. You um, eventually guess getting getting to to college. Now I want to know more about this uh, group that that you kind of put together uh, for women's self defense. How, how did that all start? Well, um, a friend of mine, uh, John Smith, uh, we were at Greenville College. Uh, he and I had been talking one day and got onto the topic of martial arts. And I taught him, you know, told him a little bit about what I had learned from my uncle and whatnot. And he goes, okay, you talk a good game, but can you actually do it? And I was like, is there a gym around here? And I was really new. And um, he goes, yeah, there, there is. Let's go. And so we left um, where we were sitting there having a snack or whatever in the union. And we left and we went up to this gym and we started to spar. We had no gloves, we had, you know, nothing. I was just wearing like t-shirt and jeans or something. And um, so he was like, we had a lot of fun with it. And he says, you know what? We should do this more often. In fact, 
how do you want, you know, meet me here tomorrow or whatever. And so we set up the time in our schedule and we started um, sparring every day and we started inviting some other people and they're like, what are you doing up in that gym all the time? It was up in this, you know, uh, upper level gym. What are you doing? I'm like, oh, sparring with John. Oh, okay. Come on. And, and I thought, you know, females really need to have self-defense skills. So I started inviting a lot of my female friends and he of course invited a lot of his friends. So um, we ended up with about 10 of us. And um, for a long time, it was me and six guys and I couldn't get the women really interested or they would come once and then that's it. And they would just kind of drop off and they're like, Oh, well, you know, I learned a couple of moves. I'm good. Um, They didn't even realize how serious the situation could be if if they needed those skills. But um, most of the couple of years that I was there, I was sparring with half a dozen guys and we would pull in. um, We we did get some females near the end of that time. Um, But again, it was still only, you know, about 10 of us all together in the gym at once. So uh, your friend, uh, John, that you started this with, did he have training as well? He did. He had actually learned a couple of different um, disciplines. Um, one was jujitsu. Um, I'm trying to remember. Another was a form of karate, but I don't remember the exact name. Um, and so, the, and then of course, um, he also had some mixed martial arts, different things that he brought in. So um, it was it was very interesting. Wow! Wow! So uh, as far as um, like the, the self-defense aspect of it, I mean, were you, were you uh, doing, you know, scenarios and, and that type of stuff for women as well? So, you know, kind of what, what, what types of things were you, were you sharing with them and how did that work? Um, usually it was things like frontal attack or um, something, you know, a guy coming from, from behind to grab their purse and, and turn their body. Um, so just different ways that they could in one or two moves, do what they needed to do and get out of there. Hmm. Okay. Just, just enough to get the job done yeah. pretty much. Right. I think ultimately it's a matter of like practice, right? Cause that's not something you're, they're doing every single day. You're giving them a safe space to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah. And the idea um, wasn't necessarily so much to get them to do, you know, full martial arts discipline, but to give them some tools that they might need and, you know, Lord willing would never need. Mm. Um, but, but they felt more confident knowing that they did have them if they ever needed them. And that, that confidence to me is worth all of the time and effort that we put into that. Just helping to transform people's lives in just that one way mm. is enough to make it all worth it. Mm. Mm. Where where did you go from there as far as your your martial arts journey? Um, did you continue? Did you seek out any other teachers or continuing on? No, unfortunately, I didn't. Um, and I developed um, more osteoarthritis in my joints. So um, now my children are asking me to train them in the way that I had been trained. And I thought, okay, we may need to find a local school because I can help with the balance and the exercise and the mental focus and things like that. But um, I'm never going to be able to do a proper sidekick again, 
you know, a roundhouse, forget it. You know, like so many things like that, that I physically cannot demonstrate for them. So um, I can only take them so far and then they would need to have another trainer. Talk to me about that as far as um, with your children and um, them asking for, for this, this type of thing. What, what is that like to hear those words? Um, it's not the first time they've asked. And um, I, uh, before, um, my, my oldest was probably five or six when he first started asking me about it. And um, dealing, he, he was dealing with too much emotional lability, too much emotional instability for me to want to equip him with punches and kicks. You didn't know what he would do with it. Right. Okay. And so that the mental part has to come first. Mm. And that's the way it was with me, that my uncle worked on other things before he got to the fancy showy things. So we did some of that for a while. And then his interest went elsewhere. And then it's now circling back to, okay. Um, and of course now with him being so much older and, um, and healing, you know, he's healed so much. Um, now he's ready for that kind of thing. So, um, I started him, um, a couple of weeks ago with the eight count block. Mm. And so, um, rhythm is a big issue again, you know, it, probably genetic. Um, so getting that back and forth side to side motion is really difficult for him. So he's just going to work on that for a while. How did they know to ask you, like, did they know of your, like your martial arts training? Like, you know, mom is a badass kind of a thing. Because <laughs> like, uh, some people will get it from, some people will get, oh, wow, you they see something on TV. I mean, Bruce Lee was a big thing for me growing up, right? But it, was they did they look at something else or were they looking at you? I think they were looking at me. Um, I've, I've homeschooled my kids for the last 10 years. And so life is learning and we talk about everything imaginable. And so, um, you know, what part of my job as a parent is to equip them for real life and to give them all of the tools that I can so that when they hit the ground, you know, they can hit the ground running when they're 18, instead of, you know, kind of going out to the world and, and taking a long time to figure out how to do basic skills. Mm. So one of the things that we've talked about is my history and how I have protected them from having to deal with elements of that and um, and how they can change family patterns in their children. And so of course the martial arts came up as, you know, how did you how did you stop it? How did you escape? How did you fight? You know, how did you defend yourself? And so I I of course explained and and it and kind of extrapolated too. And I've I try to take a specific thing and apply it to more general things. Yes, there is this one thing that applies here, but it also affects so many other things. And the mindset that goes with training can affect your entire life. So that's one of the things that I, I brought this one, you know, bad thing. And I've helped to frame it in such a way that it has become a very positive thing in, you know, not only my life and in the life of my family, but in the lives of the clients that I serve on a daily basis too. 
And, and how old are your children? My oldest is 16. Okay. My youngest is 10. Okay. Now, how do you decide when to start talking about that stuff? Mm. Particularly in, you know, if it's, if it's, I mean, I don't know if, if you, I mean, if you have challenges thinking about those times or anything like that, you know, some people, you know, might have that. I don't know if that, that's the case for you or not. I and mean, of course, it could probably, it's, I'm sure it's going to vary from person to person, situation to situation. But for you, how did you come to that decision? Well, I have always been um, very open and, um, and I, of course, went through many years of therapy. So talking about it has not been a difficult thing. Um, sometimes dealing with, you know, just different PTSD aspects, that can be difficult. But, but sitting down and talking about it or explaining something. And, of course, um, my bachelor's is in elementary ed. So there's that whole teacher mindset. And I homeschool my kids. So they ask a question. I give an answer. It's very natural. So. It's a natural thing for you to be, uh, to share. It, it's not even so much that, because it doesn't sound like you're, you're even considering that, well, they're my kids. It's just that, you know, if somebody asked you mm-hmm. if it could help them, you're going to, you're going to start talking about it. Yes. Um, and I've often told some of my pastors have asked me in the past, um, if they could share a little bit of my story, you know, anonymously or whatever. I'm like, no, just go ahead and tell them my name. Go, you know, let them know, give them my phone number. If there's something that I can do, you know, if something from my life can help another person, then I don't feel like it would be right for me to withhold that. Mm. Part of my purpose is, you know, my purpose is to make the world a better place. And sometimes doing that hurts. Mm. Sometimes it's not comfortable to do the thing that will help someone else or that will make a difference in the world. But that doesn't mean I have an out. Mm. It doesn't mean that I can just go, Oh, you know what? This hurts my heart right now. And I'm just going to cry a little bit and I'm just going to keep my secret. I'm not that kind of person. Yes. I'm going to cry. Mm. um, And that's okay. Mm. You know, so that's just always the kind of person that I've been. And that's my question. Like, where do you think that came from? You know, is that something that just developed? Is was there a particular, much like you said? Okay, well, this was the this was the point of change for mm-hmm. you know the family business kind of a thing. Was well, there was there a particular instance that happened as you're growing up that you tied in helping somebody? That's my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I always knew from the time I was really little. Like when I was about three, people started asking me things like, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" You know, like everybody asks kids and I said, I want to help people. And they're like, well, how do you want to be a teacher? Do you want to be a nurse? Do you, and they would give me all these stereotypical, typical job choices at the time. And um, I would go, mm, not really. No, that didn't really, nothing really resonated with me. Nothing really felt like it was the one. And um, of course now, you know, the things that I, the ways that I said that I wanted to help people are the ways that I do. Uh, so, you know, Young children have a knowledge that uh, sometimes we should listen to. Um, but as far as, you know, the specific point when I decided that I was going to tell people, um, most abuse victims feel a deep-seated, pervasive sense of shame. They feel like it is their fault. 
even if they're not told that, but most of them are. But I never bought it when people would tell me, this is your fault. I never believed it. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but that is one of the most important things that really helped me get through all of it because I had that just fire, I guess, in me. I knew it wasn't my fault. I knew it was wrong. I knew if I just found a way to make it through and make it out, that things would get better. I mean, part of, probably a good portion of that is what kind of made you kind of seek out. You know, I need. You know, it's okay. My, I can I can learn this stuff from my uncle. I can I can use this um, to get out because it's not it's not. I'm not bringing this upon myself. Right. And help was not forthcoming from anywhere else. Mm -hmm. The police were in on it. They wouldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Teachers at school knew about it, but they couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, my parents, of course, knew all about it and wouldn't do anything. Uh, So to a a little kid, um, all of the typical sources of authority and sources of help just were not there. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew I had to find another way. Hmm. Well, when you um earlier you talked about, and because I, I wanted to get back to this, you talked about that feeling of wanting justice, mm-hmm. right? You're finding your balance. You're going. You're working with it with your your uncle. Uh, you're getting a better feel of your body and and your balance. But then that led into kind of wanting to you're okay you're kind of letting go of looking for justice tell me more about that well that part was kind of two-part because it it came during that time but only to a degree and sometimes um you know i would think about just how wronged i had been and just how unfair the whole situation was And especially when I was in college and I saw all of these upper middle class students who had wonderful picturesque families and, you know, and I would see different things. Um, And at the time it was email chain letters that would go around. Now it's Facebook, social media posts and things. Um, But, you know, email chain letters would go around about your mother is the only one who sacrificed for you and loved you. And you know all these sweet, sticky things that I would feel envy over and I would feel anger over because I was robbed of all of that. So there were times that, you know, yes, I could be all Zen and flowy and everything would be fine. And then there were moments where something would come up and remind me that I didn't have the things that these other people had. And so that was a process um, of, you know, coming to terms with it and just being able to accept it. And Gotta be honest, there are still some moments when I see some stuff on Facebook that I'm just like, puke. (laughs) You know, it's like, no, uh, I think I'll just not show that in my feed because I don't need, um, you know, something to be, I don't need something that makes it easier for me to choose to lose my peace. Mm -hmm. I want to set up my life as much as I can to make it easier. And I, I recognize that I have the choice. I have the control over my response my reaction and things like that. Hmm. But I want to make it easier to make the good choice. Hmm. So it's not something that was necessarily, you know, you got the feeling 
like, okay, I'm gonna forgive everybody. I'm Zen now, and I'm you know I you know I'm gonna start glowing. It, right. Um, <laughs> to your point, it's yeah. it's a choice. Well, it's a, you 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 you've decided to make these choices day in and day out. It is, and um, there's a concept um, that I learned in coaching um, that has to do with uh, it's called the Chinese spiral. And the notion is that when a person begins to learn something, it's like a clay coil that's moving up and smaller and higher as it goes. And at first they're on the bottom round of that clay coil. And so they're learning, but they don't know at all, of course. And then they go over the same material as they go through the next coil. And it's the same lessons. It's the same life experiences happening, things like that. But when you come back around to it again, you are a different person. Hmm. You have more experiences. You, you may have come to some more insights. So you learn more that second time than you did the first time, even though the coil is smaller. So it may take less repetition or it may take a less intense experience to bring the same idea to the fore or to bring the same um, insight to you. Mm. So that we, you know, we continue to make those spirals through our lives. So it's not something that I expect to ever be an open and shut case. Like, oh, this is done. I'm going to put this book back on my shelf and never look at it again. Um, I, I don't expect it to be that way because it's just not the nature of life. I guess that's the thing, you know, like particularly in, um, well, most, most anything, right, that, that requires um, a little focus, uh, a little um, putting one foot in front of the other, you know, when people get tired of putting one foot in front of the other, okay, what's, just give me the mantra, just give me, just give me the infographic that'll tell me, you know, this, that, okay, and then you're going to get it. But to your point, that's, that's, that's just not how it works, you know, and, um, you know, ultimately, you know, and give yourself, it sounds like, you know, you, you, you got to give yourself some grace with it as well. You do. Yes. Um, especially in those times when you slip mm. because, um, and you will, you know, um, if you've got, you know, everyone's been through something and, and, um, and just because your pain might not be the same type or degree or flavor of, of what I went through doesn't mean it's not valid. Your pain, your pain and pain hurts. So, um, when you have those moments where whatever it is that's causing you to trip up does, then you have to, um, you deserve to extend that grace to yourself. Hmm. Um, that, that sense of understanding um, it. If you don't give that to yourself, then you're setting yourself back hmm. so much and I like to tell people the way you talk to yourself should be at least as gently as you would talk to any other person. Mm. So when you make a mistake and you know you get triggered by you know, this Facebook post or whatever and you're all upset about it, instead of barking at yourself and wagging the finger and yelling, going, oh, you should be over this by now. My gosh, that was 30 years ago. Um, instead of something like that, you should talk to yourself the same way you would talk to anyone else that you love, anyone else who's hurting and say, you know what? Yeah. 
kind of staying stagnant. Okay, are we ready to, you know, can we focus on something more positive or, or why don't you treat yourself well? Or, you know, something that you can do to be gentle with your spirit. How did you, how did you learn to do that? I mean, it was, again, was it, was it like the same, you know, was it like the inherent um, part of you that always wanted to help someone that you were born with the ability to grant yourself that, that grace? No, um, I actually used to be very, very harsh with myself. Mm. Um, I embodied all of those parental tapes um, is what we used to call them. Um, so I would hear my parents voice in my head and I would just berate myself for any little mistake or for not being perfect uh, or not working enough. And that's where, again, all that workaholism came in. Um, for a long time, I was working around 100 hours a week, every week, um, and really put my body um, through the ringer. And it, it just took a lot of hitting a wall. And it took a lot of kind people around me who spoke truth to me in a loving way. And you know, people who would say, Jennifer, look at this. Look at what you're doing yourself. You deserve to be treated kindly. You deserve to treat yourself well. And um, in my, my family members, um, my husband and my children saying things to me like, you know, wow, this is, this is too hard. Nobody could do all this. You need to rest. You need to go outside and play with it. Well, a lot of it is um, me just being too hard on myself. Mm. And um, for a long time, that was where I lived, mm. um, you know, mentally, that's where I lived, that uh, I had to, you know, work 100 hours a week, take a double load of courses, um, you know, whatever the thing was, I had to do bigger, better, faster, more than what anyone else would expect of me. Um, because that's what I grew up with and that's what I was comfortable with. Um, you know, I was We're, just be living life at that pace, at that whatever pace. was coming at you, good or bad or anything. It's just like, we've just got to keep on going. Yes, yeah. very much. Yes. Um, and so learning how to just to be able to slow down, um, again, going back to what my uncle had taught me of how to sit and how to be. Um, that, that took some training and that, that took me back to that training. Um, when, um, one of my professors said something in class, um, we had to sit silently for the, the period and he would just, he was just sitting there looking at us and he says, some of you are really angry. And, um, and I'm thinking, yes, I am. I'm paying you $400 per class session and we're sitting here doing nothing. Mm. Um, this is a waste of my time, mm. you know, because I had a double load. I had three jobs. Um, I thought that I should be doing something, not sitting there in silence for an hour. Right. And, he, and so um, he said, write down your responses, whatever you were just thinking there, write it down. And so I wrote all that out. And then when everybody stopped writing, he said, those of you who are angry about this are the ones who need it the most. Mm. If you're angry or frustrated or feel the urge to move when you are given an opportunity to sit and be still, then maybe 
you're out of balance. And when he said that, it took me straight back to training with my uncle. And I thought, oh, balance, sitting, being, sensing my environment. Okay. I, I was kind of chastised a little. And I was like, okay, so I was not angry anymore. And I thought, maybe he's right. Maybe I do need this, but I'm still not going to work an hour of meditation into my schedule all the time. <laughs> I was like not doing that. Uh, but that was also a turning point for me to, to see that, yes, I did need some just open space. I had no margin in my schedule at all. If anybody was a minute late for something, I would get irritated because it threw things off and, uh, and I didn't give them grace and I didn't give myself grace. And so, um, I had to go through that, that Chinese spiral. I had to come back to that same lesson and I had to learn that stuff again. Mm. And then a lot of those people stuck around from my college days. They're still in my life. They're still great friends mm. and they still will tap me on the shoulder when I need it and say, you need to take a break or you need to be more gentle with yourself. And Fortunately, that doesn't happen very often anymore because I, I have worked my schedule to be a lot more open and not crammed with all these things that, that I need to do. Um, you know, I run my own business. I work from home. I homeschool my kids and I'm involved in my church. And that's kind of the extent of it. So my schedule's flexible. I can work around what my body needs. I can work around what my children need. I can be patient with them. So a lot of it, it started with different individual moments that I was able to apply to larger areas of my life. And it, it also was very much influenced by people who love me. Hmm. So, I think that's the thing. Like you mentioned that before we, uh, we got cut off there was that, you know, just being uh, surrounded with people that could, um, could say those things to you. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think everybody needs those kind of people in their lives. At least, at least one person that just knows you to your core. It may be a sibling. It may be, you know, some other family member. It may be um, a spouse, a roommate, a best friend, whatever that person might be. Um, some, you know, you need someone that can see through your self-deception. Mm. So, you know, we all try to deceive ourselves sometimes and we're all like, just like, oh, well, it's just... And, and they can say, no, mm -mm. Um, or the ones that see when you are, you know, lagging in energy and you need more rest or whatever, whatever it is, you, you need different people that can do that, but at least one person that knows you very well. But to your credit as well, because I mean, it's one thing to have somebody say these things. It's a completely different one for you to accept what they're saying <laughs> and accept it in a way that it's not chastising you but as acceptance it's 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 almost a gift right mm -hmm. that oh it's a reminder of a gift that you've also got to give yourself right and i yes. think you know when you talk about those uh, you know hitting walls and stuff sometimes you just get to a point where you're just so exhausted you're 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 run out and you know all you can do at that point is that you come back you come back down to that decision right am i going to accept the, what this person's telling me and you know, realize the truth of it <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, or not. But if you, if you don't accept it, then what are the alternatives there? Because you're just already spent. Right. Awesome. Jennifer, this was, this was amazing. Um, I, I, I appreciate you so much. Um, 
your openness uh, and willingness to share. I know it comes naturally to you these days and even as, as a child, but I can tell you that absolutely does not come naturally to me, particularly the, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that we, that we touched on today. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much for that. I think, you know, just for, man, this, this could really help a lot of people um, in a lot that. of different ways, in a lot of different ways. Thank yeah. you for hanging me. Oh, um, you hit me. Listen, yeah. Anytime that I can be of help, uh, please just let me know. Well, here, and that's the, my next thing. Um, I think this might resonate with, with a few people, not just me. Um, where can people get more of you? Um, well, I am on Facebook pretty often. Um, so Jennifer Harshman. Um, and then I also run harshmanservices.com. And my email there is jennifer at harshmanservices.com. So email and Facebook are usually the best ways to reach me. And I'm very happy to connect with people and be of help if I can. That's awesome. Jennifer, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, folks, I hope that you appreciated that interview as much as I did when I um, had it with her. Uh, just, uh, Just so much knowledge, so much wisdom there. And again, Jennifer will even say, and she said in the interview that, you know, She's, she didn't have everything figured out, you know, just because she was able to get past these traumas in her life. And, you know, we all experience them day to day. You know, it's, it's, it's a daily decision to move on and to uh, work through uh, the things that, uh, that come your way. So, um, again, it was, it was a great experience for me to uh, talk to her and I hope you enjoyed it, too. That's it for the Everyday Fighter podcast for today. We'll talk to you next time.